2: the
1: oracle network riddle me that is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder abuse sexual violence drug abuse suicide and self-harm please listen at your own risk theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host
2: Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. Today's episode is a continuation of the Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand series and will be the conclusion. So I've invited Dr. Ken Lang to come on the show and discuss the case with me. Welcome to the show, Ken.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Jules.
2: You're so welcome. Ken, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, so um, I am a retired homicide detective out of Baltimore County, Maryland. Um, I started my police career in 1989 in a small little town, Avenue Grace, transitioned over to Baltimore County in 1991. And by 1995, I had tra- uh, worked my way up as a criminal investigation detective in headquarters. And for the next 15 years, I would investigate rape, robberies, and murders throughout my career. Uh, and then while I was working as in the police department, I had been invited to the police academy to teach the investigative courses and some of the techniques I was using in my investigations and I found that I enjoyed teaching so I ended up going back to school and obtaining my bachelor's and my master's degree in criminal justice administration and then in 2014 I was offered the opportunity to start teaching as a professor at a private college and so I activated my retirement and moved over into higher education and so uh, I've been working in higher education since 2014, teaching criminal investigation courses. Uh, and I, uh, 2016, I moved to Glenville State College here in central West Virginia, where I am now a, a professor teaching the field forensics program that we have. So a lot of, a lot of hands-on forensics, tactile type things uh, that we do in our courses here.
2: So when I spoke to you first about this case and you looked at the material, what were your overall impressions and do you believe this case is solvable?
1: Yeah, what a fascinating case. So during my time uh, as a detective, I worked as a homicide detective for a few years and uh, I always thought that that was kind of the pinnacle of where I wanted my career to go. Uh, I enjoyed the challenge. Uh, I was always looked at an investigation as as a challenge, as a match between me and the suspect. And um, I I like to look at investigations, especially ones like this, that are complex, that are complicated, and see what can be done in order to solve it. And so in looking at the Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand uh, case, this is really interesting in that, you know, these two people have been missing uh, for some years now. Uh, And but really, the detectives uh, were behind the eight ball when they first discovered uh, that they had a potential crime on their hands. Right. It's two months after Memorial Day, May 29, 2017. And two months later, detectives are just stepping into the investigation. There's a lot to be said about cases and needing to get in within the first 48 hours and developing your leads and then working those leads. and. And going in, collecting your evidence, and then processing that evidence so that you can use it to make your determination. And a lot of that, as you see in this case, has been lost. You know, so we have, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it, uh, all all these details later. But yeah, we have we had the potential to have a lot of evidence, but now a lot of that's been lost. But regardless, uh, that's not to say that uh, this case is not solvable. Uh, in that, when uh, we would have missing person cases. Uh, in our unit, we actually had a special squad that was dedicated to investigating those, and and then the regular detectives would assist at, at certain times. So I had the opportunity to step in and assist on some cases that were similar to this in nature, in that there's no body, and there's been a great deal of time that's passed, and you have a person of interest, uh, but you have no evidence, right? You have no bodies, you have no physical evidence, you have you don't have any forensics. And so then the case be- turns, and investigators need to start looking at what don't they have and when you can start documenting what you don't have is when you can start proving your case and in Baltimore County, where I work the our unit had worked on the Tetso case, and she was a young lady who went missing uh, I believe it was a Metallica concert uh, and her husband or, or new boyfriend. Um, I'm sorry, her old boyfriend became the, the person of interest. And it took years to solve because what had to happen was is we needed to prove that, that those persons or she no longer existed. And in order to do that, what we did was is we began tracing bank accounts through her social security number, looking for applications, and then showing that in the five to six years that had elapsed and there was never one application for uh, financial funds because you need your social security number to apply for an apartment. You need it to apply for uh, accounts at the bank. Uh, you need to be able to put in uh, deposits and and make those transactions so that you can uh, you, you can live right. You need to be able to get into the car uh, from your apartment or your house, drive to the grocery store, buy groceries, come back home. In order to do that, there's a lot of background things that happen in the financial world that we tend to forget about. But uh, when we can show that none of the none of that had ever happened, uh, then um, then we were able to take and um, uh, show that she no longer existed. Uh, and eventually, the uh, they secured a conviction based on that and the extenuating circumstances surrounding uh, her disappearance. And so here in this case, uh, absolutely uh, the same thing. In fact, it, it can be uh, even even so enhanced because it's not just one person, it, there are two people missing here uh, in this case. And so, yeah, I, I think that this is a very solvable case.
2: Yeah, that makes total sense because, yeah, back in like the 80s or 90s, it would be a lot easier to go missing and maybe kind of go off the grid. But these days, it's pretty difficult to hide yourself. Like in the age of social media, everything is connected. Internet banking, I mean, unless you have the funds available to be able to procure a new identity for you and your son, it seems that all signs point towards them being deceased.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and, and then there's the whole social connection, right? Uh, we live in a day and age where we have, we have the social media connection, and we're, everybody's constantly on their phones uh, and working those connections and whatnot like that. But I mean, in, in this case, Susan was very connected to Holly. Uh, And uh, in that that they would uh, meet on a regular basis, Uh, they were texting each other regularly, even though it was being monitored. Uh, But they were still connected. And then so now there's is there any evidence that a new cell phone has been procured? Uh, Even if she was working under as an alias, um, I would think that maybe Holly would be uh, active on her phone. As, uh, and interacting with her that way. Uh, and that's something that we could actually learn through our investigations as, uh, as detectives. So uh, social media or, or your cell phones are, are very uh, useful tools now for tracking, tracing. Uh, and um, certainly in this case, uh, that can be a, a very pe- important piece of evidence that can be evaluated but it's so time consuming to do. Um, and, and you have to understand how the technology works and 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 what you need to request from the providers uh, as a law enforcement agency in order to get the accurate information to really bolster the investigation. So, for example, uh, in many of my investigations, we were constantly contacting the cell phone provider of either the victim or the person of interest or, or both. And then uh, and asking for specific information. A lot of people are under the assumption that uh, if I text you a message uh, that that as that text is transmitted in the air, it's in it's encapsulated by the provider and then stored somewhere. And at least during the day and age when I was doing investigations, uh, that wasn't feasible. Uh, and it's not feasible because there's so much texting and communication that is going on between people that there are not enough servers to warehouse all of that information. So in order to grab that specific information, uh, what was in the message, uh, you actually need the phone of the sender or the phone of the receiver. However, the provider does grab the date and time and the type of message that was sent uh, from what number to what number and then on top of that, uh, they're also able to uh, either triangulate, but nowadays it, we're more acclimated to using the GPS coordinates. So um, so that information is also warehoused because it, it's very simple. Uh, it, it's just ones and zeros in, in the world of data. Um, and so with that, uh, it, you can actually take uh, and create a timeline uh, but you have to ask for the right information at the right time, and the provider needs to have still have that on file. Now, it was my understanding right about my re- at my retirement in two thousand fourteen, much of that information as far as those types of transmissions between people would hold on to the years. So, we well, might be at a day and age where they're able, they have actually still have that warehouse if the investigators have not already grabbed that information. But then the time-consuming part comes in where you've got to actually take the longitude, latitude for every transaction, put it into the internet, find out where that's at, verify uh, the information, drive out to the point, and then start creating your timeline to show where the daily activity of your people of interest and other persons involved in the case. And so it can be very complicated. Um, It can be very time-consuming, but in the social media world, that um, that could be a very profound piece of uh, information for for this investigation.
2: So can we talk about Jerry Osborne first? So we know that Jerry had a background in security forces in the Air Force. So does that mean that Jerry would have some kind of forensic training, law enforcement training that would potentially make him more adept at covering his tracks? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anytime we are dealing with anybody who has any military training, uh, whether it is um, a, a simple uh, infantry soldier, uh, or if we're talking about somebody uh, involved in special ops, um, you know, like like SEALs, Rangers, and, and whatnot, like that, uh, that is uh, that's always important to us in law enforcement. Uh, I, I I remember times on the road we were dispatched to houses and for a domestic abuse call. Or is something a, a fight in progress, or something like that? And somebody get on the radio and say, "Hey, just be careful." The subject lives there is prior special forces or prior military, and they have they have been trained in ways to kill, uh, and in special forces especially uh, that to do it in a stealth like manner, right? Uh, and so. Uh, that becomes a very integral part of the investigation in what do they know and could it could have it be, been used in the crime that they are alleged to have committed. And so uh, certainly in this case, that is an important aspect to uh, to learn. But then we get into uh, the timetable, uh, the, the, this two months of being able to clean up um, the house and whatnot like that, uh, that becomes very Important also.
2: So as far as motive goes, it seems that Jerry wasn't out as either a gay man, a bisexual man, pansexual, or however he chooses to identify. I'm unsure, and I don't want to give him the wrong orientation. But could the desire to keep a secret such as this be enough to kill for in your in your experience?
1: You know, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, uh, because in it, it's a, it's a secret lifestyle for him, right? In this case. And so that's something that he he wants to maintain. And so, you, you know, we look through the case and we see where, where Susan uh, challenged Jerry, um, but didn't necessarily give him all the information. At least that's what we've learned from Holly. Uh, and so, so the question becomes, what exactly did she challenge him with? Uh, what else did she know? And how threatened did he feel by that? in the lifestyle that he was uh, wanting to live in. And so, yeah, I, I, I certainly think that trying to keep that as a secret would be a way to something to, to cover up and, and, and want to keep secret.
2: So prior to Jerry and Susan meeting, Susan had two failed relationships that resulted in children. And it seemed the last relationship with her daughter, Hannah, Grace's father, was particularly contentious. So Jerry just swoops in like a breath of fresh air he tells Susan she doesn't have to work. He wants to take care of her. He seemed nice and normal, even getting best friend Holly's approval. But over time, that kind of which seemed to be a blessing at first, it quickly became a curse as Susan was no longer allowed access to finances and it was used as a mechanism of control. So is this typical in domestic violence situations? And before you answer, let me preface this with the fact that The relationship between Susan and Jerry definitely seemed abusive. But as far as actual physical abuse, we have no concrete evidence. But that isn't to say that it definitely didn't happen.
1: Uh, Yeah, so absolutely. I I think that um, a lot of the domestic violence calls uh, and even the cases I handled involving domestic violence uh, as a detective always uh, centered around that control issue. Uh, and uh, it was it was always the the male who was all of the relationships that that I investigated were male female and it was always the male who was dominant uh, in controlling in that in those relationships and who was either physically uh, and you could be mentally abusive to uh, your partner and so this this was something that we we saw frequently in, in our investigations and, it, and we saw it as a very cyclical type of uh, series of events. And so, for example, the the husband uh, would abuse the wife. And so I, I'm just remembering a, a, um, a domestic violence abuse that I had handled as a patrol officer. I went in, the the wife called the police on the husband because he had hit her and given her a black eye. they have been arguing over finances and him drinking. Uh, he liked to drink. Um, and so he punches her in the eye and
0: for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void we prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
1: and as we're dragging them out of the house in handcuffs she starts beating on us because she doesn't want him locked up she realizes that there goes the bread and butter she doesn't work she stays at home takes care of the children. And now realizes that the money to pay the rent, to buy the groceries, to pay the car payment, and everything else is is heading out the door. And at that time, usually they know more about the background of the person who's been arrested than we do. So um, by the time we get to court, the whole thing has come full circle. So uh, the husband has apologized. Uh, I'll change my ways. I'll do better. Uh, and I'll be the man I want me to be. Uh, and so then, by the time we get to court, everybody's happy, back in love again. And then, uh, and then they take, and uh, uh, she decides she's not going to testify. Prosecutor doesn't have a case anymore because there's no testimony, and charges end up getting dropped. And so this is kind of the cyclical cycle that I would see in abusive relationships. Now, the abuse doesn't necessarily always have to be physical; it could be mental. Uh, and so where the uh, the male would be uh, derogatory mean uh, to their to their spouse, to their partner and berate them and and whatnot like that. Uh, and then, but then again, it was the same cycle that we would see uh, that we would see in the actual physical abuses. So, yeah, absolutely. So even though there isn't any evidence of, of physical abuse, that's not to say that there wasn't some type of abuse that was happening here. Uh, in this relationship.
2: Oh, I think there absolutely was abuse. I just wanted to point out that there wasn't physical abuse because we just have nothing to corroborate that. But everybody who speaks about Susan's relationship with Jerry, it's like over time, he made her world so small. You know what I mean? He came in as his breath of fresh air. He's this great guy. You can stay home. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to control every single thing that you do. I'm going to control what you wear. I'm going to control who you speak to. So you have no personal autonomy. And I can't even imagine how suffocating that must have felt for Susan and what it was like for Evan to witness that happening to his mother.
1: That's a great word, suffocating. And, you know, it's sad, but uh, I've seen people in my personal life who live in these types of relationships. I I can't, in my personal relationship, I couldn't imagine dictating to my wife what she could wear, what she can't wear, who she could talk to. That Just how time consuming, even more so just to how, how uncaring that is to to dictate in somebody else's life. I, I just I've never understood those relationships and or why those people feel like they need to have control. But when they lose control, my my gosh, it, the things that can happen and the potential what what may have happened here in this case, um it, it's it's hard to fathom, it's hard to imagine, but it, it's very plausible.
2: So Susan only had custody of Evan, and it seemed that Jerry didn't only love-bomb Susan, he also kind of love-bombed Evan, going to school functions, appearing to take a great interest in him. And I'm not saying that Jerry wasn't interested in him, but from him being the only person of interest in the disappearance and potential murder of him, we've got to question how genuine this love was. So over time, Evan would disclose something to the effect of Jerry having a temper and that he was dangerous. What did you think about this?
1: So uh, so this doesn't surprise me, right? Uh, it, we were just talking about how controlling people are and how they can flare up. Uh, and so this is really uh, not surprising that Jerry can have a temper uh, and that he was dangerous. Uh, I'd be interested to hear uh, more about how his temper would flare and in what ways they, they felt in danger, right? Uh, you know, is... Uh, is this a short fuse? Is this a long fuse uh, when, when this happens uh, is this started off with a barrage of verbal abuse that's followed by physical abuse or do we just get right into the physical abuse and and start hurting people that way? But, but again, you know when we're talking about people who, who want to control, their temperament is going it's going to be different from person to person, but when they're losing that control, and they and they want to make it the uh, mold it into the form that they want. Uh, their temperament's really going to dictate how they do that and how quick they they try to adjust that to to their compliance.
2: Don't you find dangerous to be such a weighty word? Like I don't know what it is. I'm obviously not a linguist, but I think it's really interesting. It's an interesting choice of words, right? Like scary. I always think like somebody's scary. They've got a temper. They might act a certain way. But when you say somebody's dangerous, I almost feel like there's a really negative connotation that might indicate that that person could act out physically. I don't know. Is that just me that I'm interpreting it as such?
1: I'm right there with you. You know, uh, being scared is one thing. My daughter came home the other night and it was late. Uh, she got home from work late and I happened to be sitting down on the front porch in the dark and she didn't realize I was there and I scared her. Doesn't mean that I was dangerous to her, right? Because... Uh, if somebody would have come along or something like that while I was sitting there, I would have protected her, right? And I, I see danger being scared and uh, and being and being in a dangerous situation is two very uh, different ends of the spectrum in that um, in that conversation. Uh, dangerous, uh, you would, you know, you're in a dangerous situation when you're could be hurt, killed. And uh, or someone you love could be hurt or killed. And I call that, you know, for me, that's dangerous. And so, you know, working as a law enforcement officer, I've walked into dangerous situations. It wasn't necessarily always the threat of somebody else. I've ran into house fires and I've been out along the highway as speeding cars drive by. And, you know, those are dangerous situations. And um, uh, but uh, with with regard to this, Dangerous is a weight is a weighty word, but I also think that it it's it is the appropriate word for what you know, considering what may have happened.
2: It just breaks my heart that this is a fourteen year old kid describing his stepfather as being dangerous. Like we don't get that much insight into what their home life was like, but I can only imagine that it was very very difficult for Evan if that's what he's telling his friends. Oh,
1: absolutely, yes, absolutely.
2: Let's go up to the day of the disappearance. We know that Susan communicates with her friend Holly, who now lives in Key West, and she talks to her multiple times throughout the day of Memorial Day 2017. So this was the last time that Susan was in communication with anyone. So Evan has an oral surgery planned for May 30th. Jerry, when questioned by police, claims that Evan went, proving he was still alive and did in fact have the surgery as planned, and he produces a bill. And this proves to be false. The bill shows that it wasn't for a surgery; it was actually for a no-show. What were your thoughts on this?
1: So my immediate thoughts were: Jerry was thinking, "Oh, this is my get-out-of-jail card, right? Here's my alibi." Evans a lot. proof to my story. You know, the whole Susan comes back, and the day after, and they get the furniture, and Evans got this oral surgery thing, and uh, I'm not responsible for what happened. They went off with this this bearded. Bearded guy. I I think that when he first got that, that's what he thought. Maybe didn't carefully read through the bill, if he even read through it at all. Uh, Just saw that there was a charge for it on the thirtieth, but hadn't realized that it was for the missed appointment. And so I just think that that maybe he was beginning to hope uh, that he was going. He's going to walk away with this. That this is going to be an ace. In his sleeve, uh, that that he'd be able to walk away with this. And so,
2: it was pretty short-sighted, though. It's like it seems to be the most probable scenario that he's responsible for the disappearance and you know the murders of Evan and Susan. We can't prove this yet, but he's the only person of interest. Did he literally not think that the investigators were going to go to this dental clinic and look further into this bill? It just feels like how sure he was of himself when he produced this. It's like he thought that was going to be enough, you know?
1: Right. But it ends up becoming a piece of evidence that could, that could be used against them. right? Evan didn't show. Evan needed surgery. He had a medical issue going on. He needed to have that repaired, uh, and he didn't show. So then can a prosecutor bring in character witnesses to say, well, is this is this typical for Evan? Would Evan miss? Would Susan... Did she usually let Evan miss these kinds of things? When we look at it in that perspective, yeah, then the tables are going to turn, right? He, so he doesn't show, So, and he should have showed, depending on what type of oral surgery this was and what the ramifications could have been for not receiving treatment. And so he doesn't show, and it, it begins to put credence to the idea that he didn't show because he's probably dead.
2: So on the 31st, Hannah Grace, Susan's daughter, came by with her father's mother to drop off a gift for Evan after his oral surgery. So they tried to go into the home because Hannah had seen either Sugar or Schnook, the family's dogs in the window, and wanted to say hi. So Jerry stood in their way, well covered in sweat, saying he was in the middle of cleaning and would not allow them inside. What were your impressions of this interaction?
1: I was looking at this and immediately thinking... Uh, he's deflecting and, and trying to keep uh, keep people from seeing what really is going on inside of the house, right? How many times How many times do you think I've walked up to a door where I've been called, and then uh, the neighbors say, "Hey, across the hall, you know, they got this going on, that going on, this and that," and you knock on the door, and all you see is the eyeball sticking out the crack of the door because they don't want you smelling the drugs or seeing the illegal activity or and that kind of thing. Uh, And so uh, that's my my first thought uh, in in that he's he's trying to hide. But then the second thought that I had with this was just the unusual behavior in and of itself. Right. Yeah. And and so Hannah uh, is coming over to bring this gift. How nice of her to do that. And he's kind of blowing her off. Right. I'm busy cleaning. You know, (laughs) it just it just doesn't seem logical or or rational uh, for for anyone to think that, you know, hey, I'm I'm busy scrubbing a house here. And so um, can can we do this another time? Uh, it, it just didn't seem uh, irrational other than he is trying to cover uh, what was going on. and did not want people seeing the condition of the house as it existed at that time.
2: Yeah, it's so unfortunate. Like, it's so easy to in retrospect to look back and think, oh, like, what if investigators would have known or would have done a welfare check or had a search warrant at this point? before he'd had two months to clean up everything or potentially clean up everything and scrub everything down to the point where there was no discernible DNA. They couldn't find anything because at this point, obviously if he's not allowing Hannah Grace's father's mother in as well as Hannah Grace, then there's obviously a reason for it, especially if he's acting all sketchy and is sweaty. It's like, what are you cleaning that cannot be seen? It's just a weird interaction. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I've had uh, those investigations where I've ended up at a house. uh, In fact, I had one investigation where uh, I ended up at the victim's house and we had a search warrant. And we went in as soon as we walked in the door, we were about bowled over with the the smell of bleach. And it was just it it was just too much. You know, the red flag goes up. It's like somebody's been cleaning house here. and, And so then. We knew we needed to spend extra time in that area working on that, working on that uh, it part, looking for our forensic evidence and, and whatnot. In fact, we were looking for where the shooting scene may have happened. And in that case, we were using luminol. And I mean, we were spraying everything. We were just looking for anything and they couldn't find it. But they had cleaned that house really well. Uh, which was unusual because it was the girlfriend. Uh, the girlfriend still lived there, and she was the one that filed the a person complaint. Just, uh, just an unusual set of circumstances. But you know, in, in this case, I found that just really unusual that he would take that approach, unless, of course, he's trying to cover up for something, right? And yeah, all the evidence that we that we lost uh, it, at that point, it would have been great to be able to go in and cut the rug up or take the samples from flooring and have DNA that you can actually compare.
2: So like we mentioned, Jerry had a two-month head start before a welfare check was performed. And over Memorial Day weekend, he was seen by neighbors hauling furniture into a burn pit. And they smelled like this thick black smoke. And it got in the way of them celebrating Memorial Day and all their festivities so this is right around the time that Susan and Evan disappeared. Is this a major red flag?
1: I found this really unusual. Why, why are we burning all of the furniture? And my immediate thought, as as an investigator, is that we're getting rid of the DNA. Um, and so we are um, because if it's if it's if it's ash, I, I well, there, there's nothing I can do with that, right? And so uh, in getting rid of the DNA. And the DNA that, that I'm speaking about specifically would be blood or cerebral fluid, whatnot like that, from injuries uh, that could have been inflicted on somebody in, in the house. And so I'm trying to, to weigh this in my head if, let's just suppose a um, the murder unfolded in the living room area. And so how would have that unfolded with him and his uh, background in the military? Does he get into an argument? It becomes combative, and then uh, with Susan, and then uh, Evan comes downstairs, or Evan comes into the room, and it becomes combative with him. I've had mild assault scenes that are quite bloody, just because being punched in the nose or you get a laceration on the head, you tend to people you think you bleed a lot, and there's a lot of blood kind of spilling out and spraying about, but. Uh, you have what like five, almost six liters of blood in your body. so it it looks like a lot because it's spread all over the place uh, because of the altercation, right? so you get it sprayed on the floor, on the furniture, on the walls, uh, sometimes healing, depending on uh, how this altercation un- unfolds. and uh, you if you have to if if you have to clean this up, the best way to do it would be to get rid of it altogether. But if you dispose of it, And you don't alter it as it is, uh, then there's still that potential chance of making the identification of the blood, the DNA, or the DNA through the cerebral fluid or whatnot
0: No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: And so uh, what you need to do then is uh, is then destroy it. And so the best way to do that would be to burn, to burn it. Um, and we've actually had uh, some suspects take and they'll bleach. Uh, they'll bleach their garments and stuff like that just to get rid of the blood, but be able to keep the garment. Right. And so that'll destroy the DNA. But we're still able to find the blood stains right and and then and show that so uh yeah that, that that was my immediate thought when uh when i read that about about the burning it, now they the, the neighbors subscribe it as a as a heavy as a thick black smoke it's just curious why nobody called the fire department it, it were our brains allowed in this this area of alabama is this something that Happens on a regular basis. Like, you know, so I indicated I'm here from central West Virginia and, you know, we can have a campfire or something like that out in the yard and that's not unusual. But um if I were in a police car working in Baltimore County and rolling down and I saw a fire in the backyard, well, you need a permit in order to have a fire, especially if you're burning trash or anything like that. And so I was just curious if anybody had ever called on that, if it, if that was even investigated by the fire marshal or, or whoever?
2: I don't think so. I Because I think if it was, it would have been mentioned in one of the sources that there had been multiple calls either either to the fire marshal or to the police or some kind of authority complaining about these fires. It seems that the neighbors were annoyed enough to talk about how Jerry kept burning. And like, can you imagine it's Memorial Day, you're having a cookout, grilling some burgers with your family. And this jerk next door is like burning things in this thick black smoke that like smells of plastic or, you know, obviously burning things. And it's like, what are you doing, pal? Like other people are celebrating and you've got a complete disregard for the fact that other people are trying to spend time outdoors. It seems incredibly tone deaf and I don't know what type of person Jerry was to interact with. He seemed to be quite, you know, nice and typical or normal seeming initially, like even Holly liked him. Right. So I don't know. Maybe the neighbors were like, oh, he's a good neighbor. I feel bad reporting him. I I don't know what would have gone through their heads and why they wouldn't have called an authority on him. But all I can think of is this is a pretty small town. There's like thirty six hundred people in Holtzville or whatever. So maybe they just didn't want to kick up a stink. I'm not sure what would be their reason.
1: But it was just uh, kind of a thought because because indications that would be something we would look for. As a detective, we would uh, we would check the nine one one communications. Hey, was there ever a fire call uh, that here on Memorial Day? If so, who responded? What did they see? What did they uh, hear? What did Jerry say? You know, all that stuff because it kind of becomes Im- important. Uh, yeah, and we we've seen this, you know, in in the case where um, his story changes at, at times, right? And so, uh, for example, I think uh, his story changes where he uh, he ends up telling authorities that. Susan and Evan leave with this bearded guy in a pickup truck, and but then later say it was a, a, a an SUV of, of some type. And so uh, getting accounts uh, from especially different different authorities is great, right? Uh, so we would have people involved in crimes, uh, and they're injured in that crime, and they get in the ambulance, and they tell the medic exactly what happened, right? And then, you know, but they're in custody, so we get to the hospital, they're being treated, and we're... While we're waiting for them to get their stitches or whatever, we're asking them their questions, and they give a whole different story. Well, I mean, it becomes important to the investigation then to look at the two different versions and then see what, what are the similarities, what are the differences? And if the differences are really far apart, and that's something that we want to highlight in our investigation because a, a prosecutor is going to be able to use that. Him burning this, uh, yeah, I mean, gosh, hey the neighbors must have thought he was a jerk because – I mean, furniture is not just made of it, – it's not like me going out to my front yard and having a campfire and just burning wood, and you have that nice aromic smell of the wood burning, and you're having good conversation. You've got synthetic material and dog hair or animal hair in there and whatnot like that, and and that can that can make a little bit of an unpleasant smell for the neighbors. And so, uh, yeah, so I was, I was a little curious.
2: So like we've mentioned, Jerry claims that Susan left with another man, that he got a glimpse from the security camera. And I think he described the man as six feet tall with a beard, sunglasses. He was driving a pickup truck. And like Ken just said, this later changed to a Lexus SUV. I just found it so odd that Jerry thought he could tell the height of this man from the grainy security camera footage. And the change of the vehicles also really bothers me.
1: So part of my time I was a detective, I investigated armed robberies. And oh, my gosh, how many hundreds of videos did I see where the suspect was rolling out the door uh, after getting the loot and they walk right by that tape measure that's on the door of the convenience store? Right. And here's five foot, five foot and a half, six foot. uh, And they roll right by and we're looking at it and we're uh, as detectives. Who've seen hundreds of videos? We'll sit there and argue about this. He's six one. No, I'm telling you, I think he's five nine. And I was like, man, it can't be that big of a difference. A lot of this has to do with the placement of the camera and the angle that that it has. So uh, many people, when they put up their surveillance systems uh, in the cameras, they'll tend to put them up high so they can't be reached, which then gives this downward angle. And uh, what happens then is uh, you easily misinterpret the height of somebody you make them shorter than what they really are um this became problematic for us in in court uh because uh you know the the store owner would come out and say yeah he he uh i looked on the camera he was five nine and then we locked the guy up and he's six foot right <laughs> and so uh, that becomes problematic it's really hard to guess uh, what that is. But uh, I mean, but it's not unusual for uh, witnesses to be insistent about certain facts of cases. Uh, another on robbery I had, I had a guy uh, just, uh, he insisted that the gun that was pointed in his face uh, was a particular make and model. And he, he even gave me the size of the gun, said it's a nine millimeter. And here's the make and model. And I'm like, how did you know that? He says, "I just know my guns," and I said, "Yeah, that's great, but you were you were scared at the time." And he's uh, he's like, "Yeah, but uh, I know I know my guns." Well, we ended up recovering the gun, and it wasn't the maker model or even the caliber that he had he had mentioned, and it became it became very problematic. So, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you with having problems with particularly a grainy video and trying to get very particular information out of that now if he's if he's describing this because he saw this guy in person uh, then that that would be something else right but even even then the credibility of witnesses has been something that's been challenged in court for years uh, and so and, and I've seen all kinds of ways that they've done this where, They'll take the twin of the defendant and put them at the defense table, and then when the witness points to them and says, that's the man that robbed me or committed the crime against me, they'll stand up and say, Your Honor, this is not so-and-so, but actually his twin brother, so therefore we have a mistrial. I mean, so it gets complicated, but for people to be absolutely certain about that kind of stuff, particularly with the grainy video, no way, no way.
2: Yeah, like we see time and time again, eyewitness testimony is incredibly problematic unless you have like 10 eyewitnesses and you get this picture across all of these different sources. We see it so often in wrongful convictions. People are so sure. And it's not like they're usually being malicious with what they believe they saw. It's just that our memories are not quite as reliable as we like to think that they are. And Jerry here, it just bothers me. Like, for example, my dad is tall. He's like six foot four. And I'm five foot nine and he's all legs and I've got a long torso. So if I sit down in a vehicle beside my dad, we can almost look like we're the same height. So I find it bizarre that he's like, oh, this guy's six feet. It's like you didn't see him standing upright. It's just such a weird thing. And then we've got when investigators try to obtain this footage that Jerry says that he got from his security camera. They can't because the old one's been destroyed or thrown away. And Jerry's purchased an entirely new system. So they basically have to take his word on everything. And this point just struck me right in the gut. How did you feel about this? (laughs)
1: uh, This is something that we would commonly hear uh, in armed robberies where somebody on the inside had uh, something to do with helping to set it up. And that was, oh, the security system wasn't on today. It's on every day, but today, today was the day we got robbed. Um, and so, uh, yeah. Uh, again, I kind of put it in that category with the furniture, right? Uh, you've got this furniture; it has possible DNA evidence. Now we got a security system; need to get rid of that. So to do that, we can we could scrub it and go in and erase uh, the memory, the hard drive, if you will. Um, but uh, in reality, uh, with the forensic uh, software that we use for technology and whatnot like that, uh, we could actually find images and stuff that we're looking for in other parts of the computer. Uh, So, for example, when we're investigating child pornographers, they'll go in, and they have some really unique ways they'll go in and manipulate the system to move the information around within the system or uh, across the Internet. And in that, one of the things that they'll do is they'll actually go in and erase the hard drive so that if it's confiscated, Uh, They can't be convicted of of possessing the child pornography, right? But then, uh, what we do is, is our our software programs go in and start looking at the cache, which is a different part of the motherboard, and that actually keeps like snapshot images of what you were seeing on the screen. So theoretically, even even if he erased the system, and it was still there, it could be possible to have retrieved information from the motherboard. Uh, in the cache of that system to to either verify or not verify that this pickup truck or SUV, whichever we were calling it at the time, <laughs> is was was there at the time that he had said. You know, I, I was uh, I, I was thinking of this, but also thinking I wondered if anybody else in the neighborhood had surveillance systems uh, in in their their houses. Probably not because I've not heard or read anything on it. But uh, how beneficial that would have been to have a neighbor who says, well, I have a camera that points out to my driveway and it captures the road. And every time movement, somebody goes by, it it records. And then for the date and time that he said that this would have happened to not have anything record on a neighbor's camera would have been great evidence in this case for, for pushing it uh, in the direction I think that it needs to be pushed. But, yeah.
2: The amount of cameras that he had too also seemed a bit bizarre. Like this is a rural area and I don't think any of the neighbors, like you said, I think we would have heard about it if they did indeed have cameras. But the fact that he had a camera on every door and I remember Susan's mother, Linda, saying she noticed that the two weeks prior when she'd come to visit was just like, there's so many security cameras pointed at everything. Are you trying to keep people in or are you trying to keep people out type of a thing?
1: Or are you trying to watch people that are in, right? Uh, is that your way of doing your covert surveillance to to monitor, right? Or I, he was already monitoring uh, her cell phone, her telephone calls, the meetings with Holly. He's dri- Towards the end there, he's driving her to, picking her up from. Why not in the house? Uh, why not just have these sur- surveillance cameras around the house so I can see who's coming, who's going, who's where in the house? Is she wearing what I want her to wear today? Uh, That that kind of, those kind of control things could also be happening too uh, with with that. So it, it could have been more of an internal thing.
2: It's terrifying. So Jerry later says that Susan came back and cleaned out the house of furniture, but then admits to burning Evan's bed. So if we're to believe that Susan did clean out the furniture, Evan was with her. So why would she leave his bed behind to be burned? So in admitting that he burned Evan's bed, it appears that his whole story about Susan returning should now be called into question, especially since this was a one-way-in, one-way-out property and no one saw a moving truck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This should be called into question. Uh, but uh, as an investigator, when do you call this into question? It might be the bigger question. Um, and so I'm I, I don't know how many times I've been sitting uh, what I call in the box, in the room with a suspect, and we're, we're doing the interrogation. And a lot of people have this misconception that interrogations is when like the police are yelling and screaming at you and trying to get you to break down. For me, they were more casual conversations. And often, when I started in these conversations, it wasn't unusual for the suspect to make uh, to lie um, and say one thing, and then later, as we're recounting the events again, to change their story. And I would sit there and put on my best poker face and just pretend I didn't hear that, but knew that they just dropped a bombshell on me uh, in in changing a time, a place, or something, and they didn't catch it. Uh, and so. The investigators might be holding tight to that one um, because that actually uh, would be something that you would want to use in an interrogation setting. And in in this type of a case, it would be premature to to bring uh, to bring that up. You know, Uh, so you said you burned a furniture, but Susan, you're, you're saying she she came and got her furniture and it would seem logical that Evan would want his bed. Uh, I think most people would would want their bed, uh, and particularly in a time like this, when when you're in this so-called transition. So Jerry's saying that you know she's she's even transitioning to somewhere else. It would be more cost-effective keep what you have already, right? Uh, and to, and to use that. But uh, I I I agree uh, that this should be called into question at some point in the investigation. Why he says one thing, but he does something else that's contrary to to his assertion. The two don't marry up. They don't marry up at all.
2: Yeah, there seems to be a lot of incongruities with regards to Jerry. It's like he's saying one thing and he's doing another and his actions aren't matching up with his words. And that's extremely problematic. Yeah,
1: absolutely. But it's beneficial for the investigators because if they're documenting this, they're documenting this, and then they're putting together, again, another timeline here that here's where Jerry said this, but then he said this on this date, and again, this is great information for a prosecutor. So I, I mentioned that tetzo case that uh, our, our unit had handled uh, some years ago, and that was part of uh, how we were able to bring that case to prosecution. It was uh, again, five or six years after after her disappearance that we were finally able to bring it uh, bring charges. And for those incongruities, uh, those misstatements, and the inability to recall or to recall correctly what had happened in the case becomes quite beneficial. now it, it's it it becomes a highly circumstantial case, but when you start piling one circumstance on another, on another, on another, uh, and then you you really begin to build a very strong case.
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW avoid. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: I, I think this, this case can be solved, or at least prosecuted.
2: And like you said, if investigators do call him out and do call it into question, you probably want to keep this, you know, casual rapport, casual conversation going in which he is revealing all of these incongruities. Because once you start calling him out on them, Then he's going to be a little more cautious with how he speaks, a little more guarded. Maybe he's going to get a lawyer, all those sorts of things. So when you're investigating, do you pick a very specific time to reveal your hand? Like, hey, I know A, B, C and D. And you call BS on whatever he's saying.
1: The first thing you really need to do is just to begin to build a rapport with them. And and so in in this case, uh, and it depends on the individual really, too. I have seen detectives or I've gone in and I had to sit down for hours with a suspect and just talk about anything and everything but the case at hand, right? And and just to build that rapport. And then sometimes I've walked and they're like, uh, you got me. I know what you're gonna tell me. And and they just start laying it out. And I can't get, I can't advise a Miranda fast enough. It's it's really it's it's really interesting. But you know, in this case, he's gonna fight it. I think that Jerry would fight it; uh, that he would deny uh, what they have against him. It, again, it's all going to be circumstantial. He, uh, juries today, like sm- the smoking gun DNA, uh, it's not unusual for when I'm teaching a criminal justice class to have uh, have my students say, "Well, nobody found any fingerprints at the crime scene, uh, so he must not have done it." And then, and then I make the big reveal. And it's like, well, he was wearing gloves. And so you're not going to find it. And you may not find DNA and you may not find hairs and fibers and other trace evidence. Sometimes you just get a piece of this and a piece of that. Sometimes you just get one little scotch of evidence and that's it. The whole case hangs on that evidence. But in this case, I think he would fight it tooth and nail uh, in in the interview room. And I think that he would uh, it would just you're going to have to get a good detective with a good demeanor who can sit down and establish that rapport. And, and dominate the conversation so that uh, y- you start walking through the case and you lay out the, your hand a little at a time, right? Uh, and But part of what you're doing is you need to test the veracity of the person that you're interviewing. And so in order to do that, you need to get an account from them. And so, um, and so what I would do is uh, I typically would ask them, you know, t- just what happened? Two words, what happened? And let, let them talk Not and try not to interrupt them. We police, we'd like to interrupt people. But, <laughs> and, but if more officers can learn just to be more casual about that and then just ask what happened and then and then go back and you just start working, working little pieces at a time of their statement uh, against the, uh, you know, what you know. And so when you do that, then the stories begin to change. So, uh, you know we would have to see what his account would be in the, in this case. Did, would he, would he come out and say, well, when she came over, she left the bed behind. Okay. And so that might explain why he went ahead and burned it. Uh, but then you can come back and counter it and say, well, could she get everything in one load? Was it slowed in the back of a pickup truck? Or was there going to be a moving van? You know, what was your understanding with that? And then, Watch for the response watch for the body language in that because uh, you can uh, they're just telltale signs when when people are and you everybody's seen this right when somebody's making up the story as they go, right I'm an adult, I have children. those children are now grown, but <laughs> you can tell when they're when they're not being completely truthful with you right and so, Start questioning. It's it's almost like uh, interview. Sometimes almost like interviewing a high schooler, a young high schooler, uh, and then convincing them that you know that they're lying because. And then that's that because that's where you're revealing your hand a little bit at a time. You don't dump it all out at once, but the idea is to get them to understand that that you have a case against them, and that's what they're going to have to do in this case.
2: So with regards to Susan potentially taking the furniture, as Jerry had said, the family didn't believe that this was possible. Jerry was very controlling. He'd monitor her phone, as we said. He'd drive her around. He'd control her finances. So we're to believe then, if a man drove up to take his wife, his stepson, and potentially the furniture, he would just stay inside. This doesn't exactly fit the Jerry that's been painted by friends and family of Susan.
1: No, not at all. And- You know, Susan would not have been able to do this by herself. Right. We're talking about furniture, Uh, moving furniture. You usually need some help. You need some extra people. And uh, so who did who did Susan contact for that? And so uh, there's, there's no mention of that. Right. There's really no indication about who who emptied out the house and how much furniture. I mean, that's not something that I could do. Even in my younger years, that's something that I could have done by myself or just me and me and one other person. You, you need some help with doing that. Uh, the thing is, also, in Alabama, I, I, I happen to look up a little bit of regarding uh, property and the law with regards to marriage, uh, because different states have different laws regarding this. And I don't recall if Susan had this house or if this is a house they bought together. Um, But in Alabama, uh, whatever you owned before your marriage, it remains yours. And whatever you acquired uh, after the marriage is then split at a time of divorce is is how that law works. Um, But Different states have different different laws. Uh, and so for example, uh, I was married in Maryland, but at, at the way Maryland saw it, at the moment that, that my wife and I married, her property became mine, my property became hers. So she wanted to take my electric guitar and smash it against the wall. There was nothing I could do about that at that time, because that's how the law, the law is. So uh, Susan here, at least according to Jerry is coming in to move out her, her furniture. Why didn't she, if, you know, why didn't she take all of it? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think he's the type of person he's proven to be very controlling. And it seems as though he's manipulative if she did indeed come to the home and take this furniture, which I'm sure he believed to be his, he was the only person working. He was the breadwinner. I'm sure he believed that he had very much a right to this. And I'm not sure if they got the house together or if it was his first and he moved Susan and Evan in. I know they were married for four years. The house was five years old. I just don't know if Jerry lived there prior to the marriage. But I would believe with every fiber of my being that if this did indeed happen, Jerry would have called the cops and said, hey, she came and illegally took all of my stuff. If she took 50 percent, maybe okay. But he basically said it like she cleaned out the whole place and took everything.
1: Yeah, and you raise a good point with calling the cops. Uh, I, I've <laughs> I've never seen a, a separation uh, where the cops hardly don't get called. You know, we were always being called out to that uh, because well, no, that's mine. No, we bought that together. No, that's mine. And and what's the law say about this? And what about that? No, you ain't touching that. And and so it's it's hard to fathom that there would be no dispute over any of this property. I guess that was uh, kind of the, the emphasis that I was trying to culminate to is that we have all this property and there's no there's no fussing about it right there's no arguing or bickering about it and, and saying what belongs to who and this and that and everything else it's just she came in she took the stuff and she left and we're just there's so little detail in that statement or in that fact of the case um that really it's just screaming for more attention for more questions about uh, you know, well, what did she take, and how many halls did she have to do, or you know, did she use the moving van? And if so, what company did she use, and uh, that that kind of stuff? Because again, as an investigator, we want to cooperate that stuff, right? And so, if she used a moving um, a, a, she rented a a moving van, then uh, we want to go and speak. That company and actually get a copy of that invoice uh, or the sales receipt to show show that she came in the store and rented that van. That would prove she's still alive, right? But if we can't show that, and we can't even show the receipt, we can't even prove that she even got the van, and we can't cooperate Jerry's account of what happened. Again, uh, some of this could be already happening with investigators, and they're putting it together. And because we have no bodies. Uh, it, it's going to be hard to prove this case. And so you're going to need uh, all the, all that cooperative evidence uh, that you can in order to culminate to a conviction.
2: It's like the utter vagueness and the incompleteness of his statements with regards to the furniture and the lack of like emotion tied to this whole incident that would have been this kind of incendiary moment. This guy comes, basically takes your wife, You've then got a moving van coming and taking all of your stuff. If this did indeed happen the way Jerry said, it would be an incredible breach of trust. It would be a violation. You know, you would, I'm sure, interpret it as such. So the fact that he's just so vague and like kind of blase about the whole thing, it all lacks specificity. It just makes me believe that it is entirely a fabrication.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, Um, it's. And and that's something, you know, that we would look for in our interviews is what details, what cooperative information can they give regarding this? Or, you know, is he just giving a flippant answer and, you know, it and we don't necessarily chalk that up to being cooperative with us, right? He gave an answer and this is what he said. Uh, but when we did follow up questions, then there was really no explanation. Again, circumstantial evidence, uh, but you know, it can be good for prosecuting the case.
2: So we know with regards to the burning that it continues intermittently over the two months that Susan and Evan are missing. So right up until the police knock on his door, when they enter the premises, it's clear that deep cleaning has been performed by Jerry and the smell of incense was so overwhelming that the investigators couldn't stand to be in the residence. What are your thoughts on that?
1: The immediate thought that I had was, uh um, the stench of coagulated blood. When blood gets in, soaks into fabric, such as carpet, fabric on a couch or furniture or bedding, things like that, it it can leave a very foul stench uh, in the house. And so, again, this goes back to what we were talking about before or earlier with the, with the burning in, in, in the backyard and, and whatnot like that and the heavy black smoke. Uh, we're looking at getting rid of evidence here. And the deep cleaning uh, again. That's not it's not unusual for suspects to to do. And think of it also how unusual this is, right? If uh, if a member of my family went missing, my first priority is going to be cleaning the house. Uh, no, I'm you know I'm going to want to find them to help help them uh, locate these people. You know this uh, this kind of speaks towards his relationship. So he says he loves her and cares for her and. Was showing up to Evan's uh, events at school and, and doing all this and that, but then they disappear off the face of the earth and they go with this other guy, supposedly, and it's like, oh, well, I uh, guess I'll clean house. Uh, so I'll, I'll start repainting and I'll start remodeling and we'll try again. We've established this relationship. What am I doing wrong? How do I do it better? That kind of conversation is usually as usual for a normal relationship despite of where you might be uh, in that relationship. Nonetheless, it's still a relationship, but but he kind of like, it just, he breaks ties here, right? He breaks ties and it's like, well, uh, I want to move on to my next thing on the checklist I need to take care of.
2: Yeah, it's a very like laid back approach, which seems to be completely the antithesis of how Jerry is described. Like, this sounds like a very laid back person who's like, you know what? She doesn't want to be with me. She's found someone else. That's cool. Things turn out the way they're supposed to, whatever. But that is not the Jerry Osborne who's been described as being this controlling, overbearing person who reads her text messages, drives her around, tells her what to wear, who she can be friends with, doesn't want her to have even a girl's day with Holly by herself. Like this guy is just in every little second of her day. And can you even imagine the amount of energy that someone like that would need to expend in order to have that type of control over someone else. It just feels exhausting even reading about it. Like, I can't even imagine having my husband's password to his phone and even wanting to look into that. Like, I just have no desire.
1: Where's the trust? You know, isn't that part of the the relationship? That that is, it is exhausting. Uh, it, It has to be exhausting because then what do you do when you're at work You're at work. You're making money. Susan's home, right? So she's a stay-at-home mom, and Evan's off at school. So how do I how do I keep tabs on her? How do I? Oh, if I install a camera system, I can actually tap into that in my phone, and I can see what she's doing. Oh, okay. Make sure nobody's coming over. And you know, some of these some of these types of people they're, they're very insecure with their relationships too. And you'll you'll find that at least the experience that I had seen with uh, dealing with some of these people were uh, they make these false accusations like, well, who are you sleeping around with and who are you messing with? Or who are you talking to on the phone there and chit chatting with? Because are you are you be, are you true being true and faithful to me or, or what's going on here? And and so uh, the exhaustion not only comes from the physical activity of. The monitoring and delegating and directing and all of that, but there's the, also the mental fatigue with the well, what if this and what if that and um, and so on and so forth. And so, uh, it, it just I couldn't imagine living a life like that and and having a lifestyle like that. It, it would be exhausting. Huh? It would be absolutely exhausting.
2: Well, I completely empathize with Susan. When I was in my early twenties, I had a relationship that was incredibly toxic, and the person would. Accuse me of things all the time that I was never doing. And you feel like every single time you look in a certain direction that someone's going to be like, Oh, you're looking at somebody or you're doing this. And this individual used to say, while you're sleeping, you said this person's name in your sleep. Well, how do you disprove that? Right. How do you basically. Right. Do-? And so it's like, you just feel incredibly scared to do every little thing. Cause this person's watching. And I question somebody like Jerry seems to be a reasonably intelligent individual There was apps in 2017 that were like keystroke apps. I wonder if he had an app on her phone because we know he had access to it. So he could basically see who she was emailing and what she was doing. But I mean, the one thing that makes me question that is the fact that she was able to exchange emails with Holly without him knowing about this email exchange. So maybe he didn't have that app, but it does seem clear to go back to what, like what you said about the cameras watching her inside. I think that's extremely probable that those cameras were put there to keep her inside to basically say, hey, I'm watching you. You better stay in line, type of thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, one of the investigators notices gallons of white paint in a room. So, Susan's mother, Linda, had been there, as I mentioned, two weeks before her daughter, Susan, and grandson Evan's Memorial Day disappearance. And the walls at that point had been recently painted. So, the question is, why is Jerry painting yet again?
1: I'm curious what he would know with forensics in in hearing this question i'm I'm reminded of a case it was a graphic case, but um nonetheless the the suspect was enamored with different forensic shows on that were popular on TV at the time. and uh, incidentally, uh, he had went out on a date, ended up killing the date and dumping her body in a wooded area. A week later, he went back and revisited the body because he had, during that week, he had seen on his favorite show that by removing the teeth and the fingertips, it makes it harder for investigators to identify the person, which really wasn't the case for us once we found the body. Uh, th- this person went missing he became a person of interest, and he actually ended up taking taking us to the body. And we would have been able to easily identify the victim because of the clothing that she wore, the tattoos that she had, and there was readily available DNA that we can compare with you no know, DNA samples we had already collected when we took the missing person report. But we did all that. Uh, and so, and I'm saying that because uh, sometimes uh, offenders will research or look for different information. And with blood spatter in blood evidence, we have hemoglobin. And uh, in that hemoglobin, you have your iron atom. That is what luminol will react to. I'm not sure how painting over that, if you have to paint, multiple layers to reduce the possibility of having a luminol uh, reaction. I've not heard or, or looked for that information. Usually we're, we were into a scene pretty quickly and we would have the blood there, but for scenes that were still, that we were working, like that one scene where I walked into the house and the bleach had uh, bolt us over, you know, the luminol would, would give you a pattern. And from that Pattern. You could kind of get an estimation about how much blood loss occurred, and even if you're able to sustain the lighting uh, situation in the luminol, you can actually get measurements, and we can determine what we call impact angles, the point of origin in which that particular spatter would come from. Now, uh, it, it's much easier when you have the blood actually present. I don't know of any cases where that's been done because when you spray the luminol, it it's there for a few moments and then it fades. You'd almost have to have a a substrate or a surface that you can at, make appropriate markings uh, so that you could do the math and then do the stringing and and make that determination. So I'm, I'm the, the first thing that came to mind when I when I hear that question is did he know something about blood evidence? Uh, is he painting multiple layers? in order to cover up or eliminate the possibility of having that blood react or that luminol reaction to the blood stain because of the hemoglobin that's that's in the blood.
2: I love that story about the guy who heard that on CSI or whatever program he was watching and was like, well, oh, I better remove the fingertips and teeth, but I'm going to leave the tattoos behind it <laughs> wasn't very smart it's pretty easy to identify people now especially if they're missing but come on an identifiable tattoo but you're going to take the fingerprint or the fingertips it's bizarre that rationale
1: that you're using there is the same rationale that we used with him in in the interview room right it's like come on dude we got a missing girl and she's wearing this type of blouse these types of slacks uh, these types of shoes and the girl in the woods has exactly that on. Right, except she's missing her fingertips and her and her teeth. What, you know, what's going on here? You know a little bit more about about that, and then and so that you know we use that rationale in in the interview, and and we we do try to pull at the heartstrings. Right? Are, are you going to be honest with us, or are you going to clam up and be quiet and be the cold blooded killer we think you might be? And you know we kind of lay down those options for them. I don't know how. I wonder how I would anticipate Jerry to react to, to that kind of an approach, especially in this case, especially when he is so controlling.
2: Yeah. Take the right person to be interviewing him, right? I just don't think he would take the bait if you were like, oh, are you going to be that cold-blooded killer? I just get the impression and I, granted, it's very limited information we have, but based on the picture that's painted by other people, he seems to very much be in control of what he says. And granted, He does slip up a few times, like giving that receipt of Evans to claim that Evan was alive. Like, I don't think he thought that one through, but it seems that he's thought a lot of other things through and he's been very calculated with all of his decisions. So I just don't think somebody like him would be so emotional that he would take that bait.
1: Right. Uh, I I think you're going to have to have somebody who is Understands controlling people, and you're almost going to have to let him feel like he's in control until he has laid out enough information that you can then turn the tide and say, uh, "Well, here you said this, but back years ago you said that, and here you said this, and back years ago you said that," and so you almost have to lay a trap and then have him have him step into it. Uh, before he may come to the point where he will he'll he'll give a a full confession and account of what really happened on that Memorial Day weekend.
2: Yeah, he seems rather calculated and analytical. So I think if you were able to lay out all of the information and it was kind of beyond a reasonable doubt, then in that situation, somebody like him might crack. But, yeah, I think you're totally right. You need to get somebody who understands those with control issues And you can kind of play into that. It would need to be just the right person who might be able to get through to Jerry.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep.
2: So another thing with regards to the cleaning and the painting and the flooring that was quickly pointed out is there used to be hardwood floors. And curiously, now there was carpet. Like who replaces hardwood floors with carpet these days? The only thing I could think of is the cushiony bit underneath hardwood to absorb shock and sound. It would hold on to blood. So that could be a potential reason to remove it. I mean, this was a five-year-old house. These renovations, given the situation, seem really odd. What was your take on this?
1: So the flooring. When you say hardwood, it's you know a lot of the the hardwood flooring that you use is that kind of that laminate uh, stuff that you pound together, which has that cushion underneath that you're talking about. But if it's more traditional hardwood, uh, the, the the wood itself could very well soak up the blood depending on the condition of it there were what two dogs in this house uh and so there's going to be wear and tear on the the wood flooring uh we i don't know if there was any throw rugs or accent rugs that were put down in these areas but even it's even possible for real hardwood flooring for the blood to uh, actually go down in between the uh the seams uh, if depending on how well the floor was put in now the house is only five years old yeah, this is probably well in seeing the house uh from from the video that i saw i'm thinking it's going to have real hardwood flooring in there and it, that the dogs may have scraped and scuffed uh up the flooring a little bit from running around chasing each other and, and doing what dogs do and that uh, if this was in the living room area, which is a common area for the family that, that hang out and the dogs to be with family, then uh, it could very well be that, that that blood had seeped into the wood itself uh, or in, even into a, a substrate underneath uh, the actual flooring. So, again, pulling that out and burning it and getting just to get rid of it altogether so you cannot say uh, or find any of the blood uh, is was the first thing that came to mind for me.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. We've got hardwood. We've got mostly tile, like it's hot, this part of the world. So you want tile and hardwood, you do not want carpet. But we've got areas where either pushing out a chair constantly scrapes right off the wood, right? Like it needs to be rebuffed. And those little kind of divots in the wood would be perfect places for like blood and DNA to pool. So over five years, you could potentially cause a decent amount of wear and tear with two dogs. If Susan is walking around in heels on that floor, if you're kind of moving chairs back and forth and you're scraping them across the floor, that can cause damage. So yeah, there's just so many reasons that Jerry may have gone, eh, you know, I think I should remove this flooring and just get rid of it along with everything else. And the only reason I thought maybe there was that cushy stuff underneath because it was like, well, why would he not just replace it with new hardwood? Even if he didn't buy expensive hardwood and he bought the cheap laminate stuff that you were speaking of, it wouldn't have it probably would have been what, like around the same price as carpet to get like the fake wood. So it just seems odd that he wouldn't just replace it with fake hardwood, because when you say to investigators, hey, I replaced my hardwood with carpet, it immediately raises eyebrows like nobody does that.
1: Yeah, I had I had one murder case where uh, the, the, the house that we um, we determined uh, it was the Wesley Person case. It ended up being featured on Forensic Files and he was shot and killed at a house up in Harrisburg the one suspect owned like five or six houses but at the time was renovating three of them and when we got into this one house there was debris found with his body uh so there's part of plaster and and whatnot like that he, his body'd been rolled up into a construction tarp to be disposed of in Baltimore county and When we found the house and we were doing the search warrant, we got into the basement where we were pretty certain that's where he was going to, he was shot. And we got down there and the big part of the basement, the furnace was wrapped in plastic and the rest of it had just been, uh, they had a brand new concrete floor and the rest of it had just been spray painted in this gray to match with this like battleship gray on the floor or like uh no, uh, what are we going to do? You know, because that, that red flag goes up, right? It's, they're trying to cover up the evidence here. They buried the evidence it's underneath the concrete. And then we looked off to the far end of the basement and saw this little tiny room that had not yet been touched and uh, went in there. And that's where we ended up finding it. We we were able to show that that was the room where he had been shot. And so, uh yeah. Taking all that, you know, taking all that time, two months to to remodel the house after after Susan and Evan's disappearance is um, it's remarkable. It's just remarkable. And to do that all by yourself. But then again, the timing. Why? Why now? You know, Why? Why are you, you know, your your wife and stepson have left you and you're just going to remodel the house?
2: It's weird. and like, especially the way the investigators described it. It's like he had no furniture. He's sleeping in a recliner. He's got somewhere he can go to play video games. It's like a teenage boy lives there. And the reason that Jerry gives for the deep cleaning is really bizarre. So he says that Susan, always conscientious and considerate. And according to friends and family, she was not vindictive in the slightest. Well, Jerry claims that she scrawled obscenities on the floor and walls. Hence the reason for the painting and new carpet. However, Jerry has no photos of these alleged obscenities, and I find this extremely far fetched. What was your opinion on this excuse?
1: I think that that's far fetched too. But then I'm questioning if if that's the allegation. Then why aren't authorities going in and questioning him more about that, and then actually taking wall samples? Uh, because in that case I just mentioned the Wesley Person case, uh, we had plaster on the wall uh, from part of the reno, and pieces of plaster found with the body. And my crime scene technician recovered that, and my analyst analyzed it and was able to go through and find the different layers of paint and then take that portion of paint and then identify their chemical compound, right? Uh, And so wall paint is different than spray paint, which is what's alleged to have been used here. And she was able to peel back the layers and identify the color for each time that wall was painted. So why aren't the investigators going in and taking wall samples then and where these alleged sayings were spray painted up on the wall and then looking for one layers of paint, two different types of paints within those layers? Because that would corroborate Jerry's rendition of what happened. However, the absence of it would then start pointing the arrow in the other direction with regards to this case. So
2: that's a really great point. I didn't realize that they could kind of peel back the wall. And I mean, it makes sense now that you say it. I don't know why I never thought about that, but yeah, it totally makes sense. They could strip the wall, take wall samples, and then they should find this spray paint. And I mean, Jerry was also inconsistent with the color spray paint used. I think he told one person it was black and maybe told another person it was red. I'm not entirely sure on the color. So don't quote me on that, but I do know he told different people, different colors. So that's again, just another inconsistency, but yeah, it seems strange. They didn't pursue that or at least not in so far as we know, or I've read about anywhere.
1: Right. And and that's not going to be something that, that an agency is going to publicize. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Even, even if the suspect, even if Jerry called and said, "Hey, you know, you drilled a hole in my wall here, and I'd like to know what the findings of that are," we're not obligated at that point to give him any response to that because until he's charged and a defendant, then we don't have to give him anything until we get to the point of discovery. And so uh, we can just say, you know, courtesy, uh, courtesy call. Hey, uh, you. I mean, I, I, there's no reason they can't go in and take down the whole daggone wall and start. Looking at that that way. And then pay a contractor to go in and put up the other wall, right? A new wall to replace what they took. But uh, they're going to need a search warrant to do that. And of course, with the time that's now elapsed, if they haven't already done this, it might, might be hard to meet the criteria for that with a judge to get a judge to sign that.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: So there's also a missing shutter on the door. Close to where, when sprayed with luminol, the floor lit up. Mind you, I've heard a more conservative explanation on the Secrets True Crime podcast, where one of the investigators said it wasn't so much the volume of the blood, which he points out is hard to quantify. He says it was the where the blood was found. I also read that the State Bureau of Investigation compared it to a slaughterhouse, but I'm really unsure there. So either way, it seems that the blood found was atypical in volume and in location. So this was sent for testing and it came back inconclusive for DNA. Is this something that if investigators were alerted within 48 hours of Susan's disappearance and they would have got a search warrant, there likely would have been a different outcome with regards to the forensic testing in this case?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because in that time period, Jerry's had, in the two months he's had to be able to go in and clean that house, uh, he's been given ample time to get anything and everything that he may have missed. I can't imagine being him, you know, laying in bed in the middle of the night going, oh, I forgot that spot. And then thinking about the next day about her having to go to the next spot, finding that. But I disagree with well it, it is hard to quantify the blood amount loss, but again, it's being described as a slaughterhouse, right and so which is painting a picture for me of a, of a very violent scene that that unfolded in the in those areas, and those are the areas where we have blood, right, or we have that luminol uh, that illuminated and' it's given us a little bit of a picture of what happened. What we don't have is those surfaces. Uh, that have been pulled up, put out into the backyard and burned up during the fire part. So I agree you can't quantify it, but I still think that you might be able to at least to the display to jurors the viciousness of what may have happened or unfolded in that room.
2: Yeah, I was a little confused because there was clearly two explanations, like one where it's being described as a slaughterhouse, which would be indicative of a lot of blood, and then the other guy saying it's not necessarily the volume of blood, which is hard to quantify. So they almost seemed to be almost oppositional views where one, it's like it's very clear what happened. And I think maybe the other individual who'd spoken and said that was trying to be a little more conservative and very careful with the words that he chose to use. So, I mean, maybe there was that playing into it. But, yeah, it did seem strange because... These were two totally different things. Like, is there a ton of blood or isn't there? But the fact that it basically lit up like a Christmas tree says there's a lot of blood. So let's go back to the 55-gallon burn barrel. So this was sifted, and as was an additional burn site, and no remains of Evan or Susan were found. Do you think it would have been possible for Jerry to potentially have destroyed all the remains of Evan and Susan to the point where there wasn't even a fragment of tooth left? when we factor in the amount of time, like two months? Or do you think the smell would have been noticeable to neighbors?
1: I would say the snow, the smell would have been noticeable to neighbors. And the fact that there are no bone fragments found in that sifting, in order for, for a body to be cremated, the process in which that happens, so the person is put into a, a coffin that is burnable, obviously, and that's... Placed into the crematory. So that crematory acts as a furnace. And so when the fire is applied to the casket, the heat in that crematory builds up to about 1800 degrees. And in that, it consumes all of the the flesh, the muscle, the tissue in the casket. And what is typically left behind are the major bone fragments. And then those bone fragments are then swept into a device that then reduces them down to ash. Uh, and so when you get an urn, typically that is all that you really are getting of your loved one is the major, the major bone structures uh, that have been uh, reduced to ash. But 1,800 degrees, that's really hard. I think that's hard to achieve outside in your backyard. And then to have authorities go through and sift through that and not get any bone fragments at all, I don't think he dismembered them and put them in there and then burned them there. I think he probably disposed of the bodies a different way. My theory is is leaning on a, if I recall correctly, there was a, um, a cadaver dog that had an alert on a shed. So my thought is is typically bodies are rolled up in rugs and then that makes it a little easier to move the body because it becomes more of a rigid piece. So several of the cases that that I helped investigate, we had had uh, bodies in, in a rug in some capacity. And then and it helps to conceal the body as well. And so I think that maybe he moved them out to the shed area, uh, left them there for some time. It allowed the scent of decomposition to settle into that area, which is what the dog ends up alerting on. And then... If I recall correctly, also, there's a lot of waterways down in this area. Uh, And so if he killed them, that uh, the bodies were disposed in the water uh, somewhere down there.
2: Yeah, that was my thought, too. There's Lake Jordan. There's the Coosa River. It seems that there's an incredible amount of water that he has access to. And they did dig in that area that you mentioned outside of the shed where the cadaver dogs did indeed hit on. But nothing was found. And it seems obviously Jerry didn't bury the bodies there. And I remember looking into house fires when I looked into the, the case of the missing solder children. Are you familiar with that story?
1: I am not. No. It's
2: it's old. I can't remember what the dates were, maybe like the 50s. It's been quite a while since I looked into it, but there were five of the children who went missing. And it seems that there was a potential for some kind of incendiary device to been to be thrown onto the roof of the solder home. And there's various different reasons it may have happened. Maybe the father's anti-Mussolini stance, maybe the children were targeted to be kidnapped. But I think there was like nine children total and five of them disappeared in a house fire that burned for only 45 minutes. No trace of them was ever found. And so it's been hypothesized that these children were kidnapped. There's been sightings. But again... You know it's difficult with eyewitness statements and what the reasons are for the people when coming forward wasn't just a shoddy investigation by the initial fire department because this was just after the war. Not everyone had come back; they were all volunteers. This wasn't the A team, so maybe they just didn't do a thorough investigation. But I remember looking into it, and it was like, okay, but crematoriums—it's eighteen hundred to two thousand degrees. A regular house fire will burn around a thousand degrees. But at a crematorium, they're also burning at that temperature for a really long time. To be able to replicate that in an outside kind of scenario would be pretty difficult. So that's why in that case, with no bone fragments, no teeth, nothing left behind. A lot of people believe that those children were indeed kidnapped. Personally, I have no idea what happened. Maybe the investigators just didn't look for the right things and they missed the traces. But. That's what I thought of when I looked into this case was like, okay, could he have burned the bodies? Well, maybe he could have. But I just think that people would have smelled this constant smell of cooking meat. And
1: so I have had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to smell burned bodies. It is repulsive Uh, in so much that I could not uh, I'm a meat eater and I could not barbecue for like two weeks because um, it's very repulsive. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but the one instance, uh, a, a truck driver had, who was driving a diesel truck had ran off the road, hit a telephone pole, pulled the cable or uh, the, the lines loose, ignited the truck and a uh, six foot four truck driver was reduced to two feet a pile of just burnt meat. And it's horrible. Uh, the Wesley Person case, that body was burned on the side of IV-3 in December 2005. And so. He um, and he had an accelerant poured on him, and then he was wrapped in this tarp. Uh, so you had the plastic with the accelerant, but then burning of the hair and the tissue—it's it, just—it's uh, just repulsive. And so yes, I, I would think that the burning of two bodies outside would have certainly caused for some some nine-one-one calls because it has. I mean, I, I had I had nine one one calls for people calling because the neighbor because there's a stench coming from the neighbor's house, right? And you get there, you find they've been dead for two days. A burned body is well beyond the stench of that. It, I think it would have prompted some nine one one calls.
2: So we know that Susan had bought a boat for fishing. It was one of her and Evan's favorite activities to do together. And Susan had put a, a great amount of time and money into this boat. Prior to her disappearance, I presume during one of her investigations of Jerry, on Craigslist, she found an ad posted by Jerry, and the ad was curious to say the least. So it provided a map to the home, as well as times that Jerry was at work and his wife, Susan, would be home alone. And this just sounds incredibly suspicious. In my mind, I thought, wait, like, what if he's trying to pay someone to kill her? What a perfect way to post directions and time so that someone could carry out the act. Or I don't know. I suppose it could be as simple as inviting someone who may predate on Susan. I cannot think of one single innocent reason for this. What are your thoughts?
1: You know that was uh, I, I thought that was an interesting thought process with that 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 he could be pointing towards towards uh, the home, giving them directions. Uh, a paid killer. It's not unusual for people to uh, to hire someone to kill somebody else. We would have cases come into to our office for investigation and uh, we would intervene and instead of s- sending the killer, we would send an undercover police officer, but <laughs> you know, but that, that could be, but then, but then, then you have to go back to his military bearing his uh, experience. And then this whole control aspect about him that he wants to control the Susan and, and everything. And so much that, you know, we're, we're, we're speculating, uh, were the cameras really there for security, or were they there to monitor for her actions and what she's doing while he's at, he's at work? And so, or are we trying to build an alibi here and make it look like somebody else may have come over and done the killing? And ah, I have no idea anything about this was was supposed to happen here. And, and, and so, it it certainly creates a cloud of doubt in, in the case. It would be a feature. Of the facts that we see that the a process or a defense attorney would focus in on, yeah, maybe he posted it. Uh, maybe somebody else posing as him posted it. And I don't know. It's interesting that it's an interesting thought that, that somebody else could have come over. But that would also give rise to the need for getting rid of the surveillance system or getting rid of the DNA, any DNA that might have been in the house at the time of the killing, because uh, some, depending on, you know, any any act of violence, you always stand the risk of having both a victim and the suspect's DNA at the scene of the crime. And so, you know, we refer to this as as uh, Lockhart's transfer theory, right? And so where... You pick up trace evidence, you leave it, but it's more pronounced in cases of violence where if uh, one person punches the other and the other punches the back and you both get bloody noses, you're leaving each other's D- your DNA at the scene. And so that would warrant the need for getting rid of and and, re- and remodeling the house uh, and getting rid of all that furniture to, to completely eliminate that DNA altogether as well. So. I thought that was a. I think that's a really valid thought, and I certainly think that that's something that uh, the investigators are going to have to explore in this in this investigation.
2: So Jerry reportedly had a very close relationship with his parents. They did his yard work at times and sometimes slept over, despite having their own home close by. Some say it's strange for a grown man, and I'm personally not about to judge this. But Jerry gives them an excuse for why he put carpets in and repainted, as in, my parents said that I should. He also uses them for an alibi on Memorial Day. They say he was there, but not the exact hours that Jerry claims. The most bizarre part about the parents is the father of Jerry dropped off the family's beloved dogs, Sugar and Schnook, at the Humane Society without telling any of Susan's family or friends. And for the name of Schnook, his father put Susan. This never sat right. He had to have known Susan didn't name her dog after herself, Susan. What did you make of this detail?
1: And so dad doesn't know much about his daughter-in-law, and, I mean, and the dogs. And yeah, this was, this was peculiar in that, well, they're taking the dogs and they getting rid of them. Uh, you know, why isn't Jerry keeping the dogs? But then I don't know. I, th- I thought that was really I think that's really strange that he is calling uh, the one dog, Susan. Who knows?
2: Another odd detail with the parents that I thought was really strange was, OK, so Jerry obviously told them right away. He's really close with his parents. What happened? Why Susan left? And in those two months, it's not like they're on his property, helping him out, doing his you know yard work, sleeping over only after investigators find out. So it's sort of like you knew this detail before. Why now are you stepping in and doing everything for Jerry? Is this just about optics? Is it because he needs to look like he's the grieving husband who cannot do this? It seems strange. They had this information the whole time if they wanted to help him out. Why not help him out directly in the aftermath? Why then?
1: Exactly. Uh, Why then? Other than like when the neighbor came over to give the gift for uh, Evan, before his oral surgery and and jerry kind of shrugged them off well if you have a crime scene inside the house that you need to clean up and you need to dispose of things we certainly don't want to drag mom and dad into this and have them become witnesses to what they saw that could be used against him in a court of law so so coming in afterwards i i i liked how you characterize that as being optics later uh after all the work is done and um I, I think I, that's a good way to to visualize that.
2: So one final strange detail is that Jerry quickly filed for divorce from Susan within something like three or four months. He was granted this divorce. He was a person of interest in her disappearance. This seems odd to me. Can you explain how this is possible?
1: No, I can't. I, I, <laughs> I'm not an attorney. I, I, I I'm not familiar with divorce laws in uh, Alabama. Uh, if she's not there to contest it, but, you know, she's disappeared his allegations. She is gone with this other guy. Uh, and so uh, certainly adultery would be the the primary reason for filing for the, the divorce. Uh, again, each state has their own, own laws with this. How the court systems handle that there in Alabama, I'm not sure. I imagine it be a rather conservative approach in that it's not tolerated in that if you can prove prove that but it's been my experience that with divorce laws most often once it's filed uh, typically they sit kind of dormant for a, at least a year before the court really takes any action on it and so it's really it's really odd that that didn't happen here again I'm not an attorney and I don't know what how Alabama looks at this but uh, you would think think that the courts would want to hear her side of the story and would have sent the summons and all that then again they don't know where to send the summons to because according to jerry she's left with this other guy and he don't know who he is or where he lives or where she's at now so he, he's not going to have any contact information for her to be a summons to court so hey this is um this is interesting and he files three to four months afterwards. Again, I, I kind of go back to my thought of why not try to work out your relationship, right? What's going on here? What, uh, there's no effort. And all these instances of the, the strange activity, uh, you know, they mount up to something more than just what Jerry is, is portraying here.
2: Oh, exactly. And I think he was granted the divorce like three or four months after. I think it was almost literally three months after investigators were on to what was happening. They did the welfare check, all of that. I think he filed for divorce like a month later. It just seems like it's really strange timing. She's missing and you're doing that. I mean, I'm obviously not a lawyer. I'm not even American. So, I mean, I have no idea how divorce law works in Alabama, but it seems like if this person is missing and they're documented as a missing person, her and her son, it seems like going ahead with the divorce and granting him that divorce. Seems bizarre because he's the only person of interest in her disappearance. So to give him what he wants legally is strange. And during the divorce, there's no mention of finances, just that each was responsible for their original debts. The division of property was discussed, but it seemed weird that Jerry would even bring this up because he knew that if we are to believe him, Susan took everything. And if we are to believe the evidence in front of us, then the most probable scenario is that he probably burned it all.
1: I mentioned earlier that uh, Alabama does have these two categories with uh, finances and divorces where they they look at property that's acquired before the marriage and then property that is acquired during the marriage. And again, it's just odd that he would he would do this and, and bring, you know.
2: Okay, so the State Bureau of Investigation or the local police, I'm unsure exactly where it originated, but they came up with, I'm sure you're very familiar with how this is done, a missing persons flyer, which had all of the information about Susan and Evan, had the reward listed and the proper authorities to contact. So Jerry and his parents, they wanted to put out some flyers. Well, they didn't use this specific flyer. They made their own flyers. They listed a reward of, I think, $5,000, and it actually said it multiple times on the flyer. But when it came to the section of who to call, which phone number did they put on there? He didn't put the investigators. He put his parents. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Are you serious? I'm yeah. serious. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh! No, that's weird. Uh, they put the parents so daddy who can't get the name right of the dog is going to take care of this for us. Okay. This screams him controlling. Uh, His his controlling, uh, to me, is coming back into play here. So from what I'm hearing, he's taking and he's seeking information. It comes into Dad. He can get it from Dad first before the authorities get it. And then that way he can react and do whatever countermeasures he needs to do. I guess you could call it, because of his military experience, his recon, You know, his way of of getting his reconnaissance and finding out what he needs to find out to make sure that he's covered all his tracks. And so,
2: yeah, he can control the narrative this way. And even if this information does then get to authorities, he's got the ability to kind of put an alibi around it or contextualize this or fabricate some kind of story. At least he's not ill-prepared, right? He's, like you said, it's a reconnaissance mission. He can get this information and either control the flow of information to law enforcement or then be able to appropriately react when they receive said information. But here's another thing that I thought was really weird. So uh, Susan was ordered to pay child support to the father of Hannah Grace. And so after Susan disappeared, you think the child support would stop, right? Well, no, apparently Jerry meets up with the father of Hannah Grace and makes an arrangement to continue to pay child support in Susan's absence, which I cannot possibly for the life of me think of any other motivation except for him not going to authorities. And it buys Jerry some time. What do you think?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. What a a scam. Yeah, it does buy him time. Right. But in the eyes of the law, she is not... Been declared deceased, and you know is no longer able to work in that capacity. So theoretically, it's I guess it still needs to continue. But you know, uh, again, this is where the investigators could use this information along with the other banking information that doesn't exist for the past five, four or five years, and that she's not using her social security number. She's not active in doing any of any banking. Or using any or social security number for any activity that you need to to exist, right? To pay her bills, to to do her banking, uh, to to pay her rent and whatnot like that. This could go towards motive even uh, for the prosecutor. Yet, so yeah, this is that's a, that's an interesting twist in 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 that.
2: Yeah, because you'd think that he would be the first person to go to authorities, and I know because of earlier on. When Susan had fallen on hard times, I think it was after the two of them ended their relationship and she went home to get back on her feet. And she didn't provide the what is customary 45 days notice to the other parents to say, I'm going out of state with the children. But I think in Alabama, if there's extenuating circumstances, it's okay. But she ended up losing custody of both the children temporarily and had to go back to Alabama to fight that. And from my understanding, the two men, the father of Evan, had money and the father of Hannah Grace did not. Therefore, they joined forces with an attorney. And funnily enough, she ended up getting Evan back, but not Hannah Grace. So I don't think he was mm. in a financial position to be able to turn down the support. So it could have served as like a motivation to be like, okay, I'm not going to say anything, like just keep the money coming type of a thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, we handled a number of death cases where um, elderly parents were living with their children and uh, the parents were re- receiving monthly income from the state for social security or SSI or whatnot. And they died and the uh, the children didn't do anything to say anything. They just kind of covered mama, left her in a bedroom as she decomposed. And every month they collect that check. People do some strange things.
2: There's one other really weird detail with regards to the father of Hannah Grace. So on the day that the police did the welfare check and then they got the subsequent search warrant, after that was served, they, you know, searched the place. A couple hours later, same day, a 911 call, I guess, was made from the father of Hannah Grace's home. And he was calling for a welfare check on Susan, which it's like, this is a small town of 3,600 people. He had to have heard through the grapevine that the police were already there. It's like, are you then trying to cover up and make it look like you're now concerned about the welfare mm-hmm. of Susan? But some have even suggested that it might have been Jerry because the two of them were in contact, because I don't know why he would do that. But Jerry wasn't there, I guess, when they served the search warrant, they had to call him and he had to come back to let them in. So I don't really know. But it seems like such a bizarre thing. Like, why now? Why are you calling for a welfare check on Susan now?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And that that could be taken a couple of ways in that, just like you just outlined, you know, is this, are you trying to show an in in this, or is th- is this kind of a, a, an alibi? And um, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that when you when you characterize it in in that respect.
2: There's just so many weird details with this case, but this pretty much wraps up the case of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand. Do you have any final thoughts?
1: So I think this is a case uh, that is solvable. I certainly think that the authorities can go through. They're going to have to dedicate time and a lot of effort to putting this together. And I realize it is a heavily circumstantial case, but uh, once you can go in and show that it's not possible for uh, either Susan Osborne or Evan Chartrand to exist anymore. Susan, you know, we've talked about her to great lengths, but uh, Evan He's 14 years old when he's missing. He's required to attend public school. He has to be enrolled somewhere. And being able to show that 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 hasn't happened or a lot of what Jerry has described hasn't happened, it will make this for a possible case that the prosecution can bring to conviction. So it's a very interesting case. It has a lot of twists and turns. I still don't think it's out of the realm of being solved.
2: I'm super optimistic that in the future, and like you did say earlier on, there are certain things that law enforcement probably is keeping close to the best, and they probably know a lot more than they're telling the public. This is just what we know, and it's incredibly suspicious. But I've got to believe that they've got a lot more. And you said earlier on in the episode, before they're going to charge Jerry, if they do indeed charge him, they need to have everything, like all their ducks in a row, because you only get that one bite at the apple. You know, you don't get to be like, "Oh, we didn't do it properly the first time. Let's just recalibrate and do it again." They don't have that option, so they're gonna have to make sure that they've got everything. And like you, you also brought up, juries want to see that DNA, they want to see that forensics, but this may end up being just an entirely circumstantial case. The circumstantial evidence is incredibly compelling, and there might not be that DNA. They might not have that forensics, and they might find that the. The circumstantial evidence has to be enough. But I, like you, I'm super optimistic. I really, really hope that that they get it together and that the prosecutor agrees that they've got enough to bring it to trial. And they do charge Jerry with not just the disappearance, but with the murders of Susan Osborne and Evan Chartrand. It is very clear that these two individuals are no longer alive. Like you said, the social media of a 14 year old boy and the social media of Susan, like we would see some connections, not only with the bank accounts, but he wouldn't be able to just stay in hiding and out of contact with everybody. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 14 year olds, what are they doing? They're gaming and they're gaming online. How do you just abruptly stop that? And you're not doing that anymore. And I don't know if that was part of of his, of his uh, routine, but Certainly, uh, if it was, uh, you know, again, the authorities can share that and then share that it's completely ceased and, and it doesn't happen anymore and and they can make their
2: case. So, Dr. Ken Lang, do you want to tell my listeners where to find you on social media, YouTube and about your recent book?
1: Sure. Uh, so I am on Twitter. Uh, and my handle is at Dr. Ken Lang. And uh, you can also find me on YouTube. I just started my own. YouTube channel there where I'm covering some true crime cases and a uh, courtroom cases. And that is the crime investigation files. Um, but also I've written three books uh, already walking among the dead standing in the death's shadow and death comes uninvited. It is my trilogy of my homicide cases. When I worked as a homicide detective in Baltimore County uh, and this June 28th, I am releasing my next book. It's called A Life of Crime. It is my autobiography of my time as a law enforcement officer. Uh, some fascinating stories in there, but I give you the inside perspective of what it's like to work inside the police department. And I also uh, I dabble into the the different parts of the system and why it's broken. So connect with me on Twitter. Uh, I'll follow you, follow you back and I would hope to see you on my YouTube channel and checking out my videos.
2: I want to thank you all for listening. I would love to hear from you all. If any of you have anything to say about the case, any thoughts, you can reach out to me at riddleme.pod at gmail.com, or I'm really, really active on Twitter. So please follow me. I'll follow you back at podcast riddle. And I just wanted to let you all know if you're unaware I don't have a Riddle Me That Patreon, but I have a Patreon with Dr. Ashley Wellman. So at the $3 level, you get early access ad-free episodes. At the $5 level, there's a Jules and Ashley, where either Ashley will tell me a story or I'll tell Ashley a story, and it will be conspiracy theories solved, unsolved, kind of a little bit of everything. At the $10 level, there's a Path Chili Mini, so we'll have Robin joining us for that. So we're really, really excited. I will link that in the show notes. So on that note, I want to thank our latest Patreons to the Jules and Ashley Patreon. So Amanda Fenton, John Keegan, Andrew Sears, Cheyenne Gallegos, Lorenda Bennett, Sarah Light, Maggie, Melissa Hanna, and Kelly Snyder. Thank you so much. We appreciate you to the moon and back. So until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Jury Room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe.
0: That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, by law, 80 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.